The scripture reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verses 1 through 19. It can be found on page 2 in your black Bibles. Now the serpent was the more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cold of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plant of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For, it out, uh, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Sergio. Good morning again. It's me again. My name's Clay. I'm the associate pastor here at Christ the King. Realized uh, after many years that uh, on the 4th of July Sunday, when you're the low man on the totem pole, you get to preach and lead worship all at the same time. It's great though. I'm happy to be here. Uh, this, is, this is a and one of the reasons that I'm happy to be here is because of what this passage of scripture represents, which is the story 
of the Bible in its seed form. We have been studying the book of Genesis for um, a long time. And in fact, um, you know, as Sergio just announced, we were only on page two of the Black Bibles. It's been a while to be on page two. Uh, And John, the last two weeks, uh, took two pieces of what's presented in both chapter 2 and chapter 3 and kind of drilled down really uh, heavy on uh, kind of a microscopic level on on food and what that represents through the scriptures and also on shame and what that represents through the scriptures. This morning, we're going to zoom back out. Those were the trees. We're going to zoom back out and we're going to look at this, this forest Because in this forest, you find in seed form the story of the rest of the Bible. Um, The whole thing, which is, I think, to me, intriguing. So uh, let's pray in just a minute, and we'll jump in. And we're going to look at this passage under three headings. The first is the problem of sin. The second is the consequences of sin. And third is the answer to sin. So the problem of sin, the consequences of sin, the answer to sin. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you for your word. We, we thank you that you tell the truth, that you are a God who speaks truth, even when that truth is hard and painful, but also when that truth is beautiful. And in this text, it is all of those things, and so I pray that we would attend to it well, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, and that you would lead us and point us to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So sin, that's what this sermon is about. Um, sorry if that's not what you were what you were hoping for, but that's what this whole uh, that's what this whole chapter of the Bible is about. And first, we're going to look at the problem of sin. And the first thing I want to do is offer a definition, because truthfully, the word sin is not used in Genesis chapter three. It is a word that is used a lot in the rest of the Bible. It is not a word that is used in Genesis chapter three, but the concept of it, in fact, our introduction to it is here in many, many different ways. So we need to ask ourselves, what does that mean? What is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism actually does a great job of defining sin. It uses a little bit of archaic language, but the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines sin as any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And and what this means is there's two aspects to sin. Sin is disobedience against God either by not measuring up to his standards perfectly, like love your neighbor as yourself, when you don't measure up to that standard, you sin, or by breaking one of the rules or the laws that God has set, like uh, do not bear false witness. So whenever you do that, you also sin. So to sin is to disobey God either by not measuring up to his standards fully or by breaking his standards. And we see both of those here in this passage. Sin originates here with Adam and Eve, and then it is passed on to every single human being born after them, and that is all of us. And so we see this sin concept here in Genesis 3, both with the root of sin and then the act of sin. The first thing we see here is the root of sin. And one of the things I want to just kind of talk about for a second, of all of the 
kind of places that people who are skeptical about the Bible saying true things and telling true stories, one of the main places that people go in that skepticism is right here in Genesis 3, chapter 1. Because in Genesis 3, chapter 1, we see something that I have actually never seen before. And that is a talking serpent. A serpent who talks. And people look at this and they say, Well, we know that serpents don't talk and therefore this can't be true. And if this can't be true, then anything that follows it in the Bible also can't be true after it. Now, this is an argument that kind of, it cloaks itself as something that is rational, but actually it is an argument of faith. It's an argument of faith. It is of course true that it is not normative in our experience for snakes, serpents to talk. And the Bible never claims that it is. But to doubt the historicity of the temptation of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden is simply to assert by faith, an act of faith, that the supernatural is impossible. That the evil one, Satan, cannot possibly take on the form of of a serpent and use the serpent as a mouthpiece for temptation of Adam and Eve simply because that can't happen. That's the reason. But again, that's faith. That's actually an act of faith to assert that that cannot happen. Just like it is an act of faith for me to say it can happen. Or that Jesus can transform water into the finest wine or Jesus can raise Lazarus from the dead or that Jesus can rise again from the dead on the third day. If your worldview has no room in it for supernatural events, so be it. But that is a worldview nevertheless. It is a view of the world that you have that you can prove to be neither true or false. You just hold it. So I would encourage you, if you're skeptical of the story, to at least keep an open mind to see if it makes sense of reality as you actually do experience it in yourself and in the world. For me, I think it does. So what happens here? Well, what happens is that the serpent approaches Eve in the garden. We know from verse six, by the way, that Adam was with her in the garden at the same time. And he told her the following things about God. The first thing that the evil one said through the serpent to Eve and Adam is this. God is miserly and not extravagant. God is miserly, he is not extravagant. God is holding out on you because he wants all of the good stuff for himself and he wants to hold the really good stuff back from you because, and this is the key that Satan is trying to convince Adam and Eve is true, because God knows that you can be just like him. You can be God. God knows, Satan says, that on the day of you eat of it, the fruit, your eyes will be open and you shall become like God. That is actually the first root of sin. God is giving you the whipped cream and the sprinkles, but he's keeping the entire Sunday for himself. 
He knows that your eyes will be open, that you'll be just like them, and he's holding that back from you. He's miserly, he's selfish, he's not extravagant. That's the first thing. The second thing that Satan says to Adam and Eve is this, God is a liar. God is a liar. In chapter 2, 16 and 17, God specifically told Adam that he could have all of the fruit of all of the trees in all of the garden except for this only this one. And God said, on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And Satan comes to Eve after she explains that to him. Actually, she embellishes it a little bit. But nonetheless, she explains it to him. And he says this, you will not surely die. He directly contradicts the word and the words of God. You will not surely die. God is lying to you. Why is God lying to you? Well, he's lying because he is insecure in his godness. And he doesn't want you to rise to the same heights that he is on. He knows that that is exactly what happens if you eat of that fruit. And he was holding that from you so much so that he's going to lie to you about it. And those two lies from the devil stirred up something in the hearts of Adam and Eve, something that lies at the root of our rebellion and our sin as well. And it is this, foundationally. We want to be God. We want to be God. You and I desperately want to rule over our lives with full autonomy and full control. We do not want to submit ourselves to our creator who made us and so rules over us. We want to be God. The lie is this, you don't need God, you can be God. And the root of sin is believing that lie. Desire for autonomy um, over our own lives is not new. Obviously, it's not new. It's at the root of everything that we see here in Genesis chapter 3. It's as old as Adam and Eve in the garden. Yet we do live in a time and we do live in a place and we do live in a culture where this approach to life is both celebrated and pervasively spread. It's celebrated through the dominant ethos of many in our culture of what has come to be known as expressive individualism. Simply find out who you are as an individual and express it apart from any kind of other exterior or objective authority in your life. It's also pervasively spread through social media and countless entertainment apps. You'll hear this. You'll hear this desire for life sovereignty, for our own desire to be the gods of our life in the language that we use, particularly the language of authenticity and the language of truth. For many in our city, in our culture, the highest good in life is simply to be true to your authentic self, to be true to your authentic self. And that means that you are the only and ultimate standard that determines what your authentic self is. Now this contradicts the Bible. This contradicts the scriptures in that God is your creator. God is the creator of all human beings and therefore God sets the standard for what is good and for what is true and for what is beautiful and for what is right. In the language of truth, we have made a very subtle, with a small word, uh, but a very cataclysmic 
um, sort of transformation from speaking of the truth to speaking of my truth. That's kind of where we are. We've gone from speaking about the truth to speaking about my truth, which is explicitly identified uh, as the root of this rebellion in the garden because my truth is to find out what is true for me. It doesn't, there's no objective standard around it. I am my own God. I set my standards. I determine what is right or wrong. I determine what is good or bad. I determine what is beautiful or ugly. And then I simply live in accordance with my judgments about those things. All of those are at the root of wanting to be our own gods, wanting to rule over our own lives. And one of those consequences of the root of sin then is the act of sin. Because Eve, seeing that the fruit of the tree was desirable to the eye, it looked really good and good for food. I bet you that's gonna taste really good. She ate of it and she gave it to her husband who the text says was with her and didn't say a word or to lift a finger to stop any of this or to talk back to Satan or do anything and he ate as well sin promises us sin promises us that if we are our own gods and go our own way then something wonderful is going to happen to us sin tells you that if you just make fun of your old friends in front of the group of people that you want to be your new friends, that everything that you really want is gonna happen, that they'll accept you, that the longing for popularity that you feel deep in your bones will be satisfied and that you'll rest and be complete. But it doesn't tell you that when you do that, you're gonna die a little bit inside and that it is going to begin to build calluses on your heart that makes it easier and easier and easier and easier for you to behave that way, setting a trajectory of people-pleasing in your life that's gonna make it harder and harder and harder to escape from. Sin tells you that your boredom or your frustration or your anxiety or your depression can be cured or at least held at bay by a person on a screen that you treat as not a person at all, but simply an image exists to do your will, to give you a hit of dopamine that temporarily blocks out your stress or your loneliness. It's the same thing as Eve looking at this fruit. It looks good and I bet that's gonna really taste good but it doesn't tell you that the more that you do that, the less able you are to be intimate with a real live human being with flesh and bones. And the more that you become enslaved to the image on the screen. Sin tells you that success in your school or in your work is the ultimate good and therefore supersedes your integrity because it is what is seen and therefore what is valued. That success is appealing to the eye. Ooh, that looks really good. And good for food. I bet that's gonna taste good if I can just get there. So lying and cheating and using other people really don't matter. It's only the end that matters. But sin doesn't tell you that you may set patterns or will set patterns for the rest of your life. Begin to see other people as 
pawns in your game of success and you end up alone and completely completely beholden and enslaved to those things. When you and I believe the lies that surround what it will actually be like to be our own gods and we chase those promises, we become the gods of our own sexuality, we become the gods of our own work life, become the gods of our relationships, we become the gods of our bodies, become the gods of our appetites, we become the gods of our speech, we become the gods of our online presence, of our politics, of our entertainment. And we never really stop to ask, how's that working for us? Fortunately, Genesis chapter three asked that question. How'd that go? How's that working? Well, basically the same way it worked out for our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the garden, here we see the consequences of sin. Satan promised Eve that if she just ate the fruit that God had forbidden to her, then her eyes would be open, and Adam's as well, and they would become like God. So what happened? Well, verse seven happened. They eat of the fruit, and the next thing that the text says is the eye and their eyes were opened. And you're thinking, Whoa, it worked. It didn't though. It didn't because the next words are actually tragic. And their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked. Now what's that about? And why is that a problem? Why is that a big deal? Well, these are some of actually the most tragic words in the Bible. In verse two, God creates Eve builds her, makes her out of part of the flesh of Adam, brings her to Adam, and Adam sings a song. He's so happy. This is the one. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And the text in Genesis chapter two says, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. They were naked and they were not ashamed But here, they eat of the fruit. It promises that they're gonna be just like God. So they eat it, their eyes are open. What is the first thing they realize? I'm naked. I have to cover myself. I have to hide. Satan lied. The promise of sin lied. And the consequences of sin are devastating. And they're just as devastating now as they were not then because the apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter five that these consequences of sin are inescapable and they are universal. What are they? Well, the first is a severed relationship with God, a broken relationship with God. Before, think about this. I can't, I actually cannot even imagine this. But before Adam and Eve rebelled against God, They sat in the garden with him face to face in perfect, unbroken, unfettered, intimate relationship. But no more. God's promise that on the day that they ate of the fruit of the tree that they would die did come true. Instantaneously it came true. Spiritually, they died. Their relationship with God was severed and broken. And it also set into motion the physical death and decay of their bodies that would come and result later. But tragically, on the day of their rebellion, their eyes were opened and they hid from God. How about you this morning? Are you hiding from God in any way? Are you trying desperately to do anything in your life not to stop to the place where 
guilt and shame and feelings of, 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 of alienation just kind of rush into your body? Adam and Eve hid from God and they tried to cover themselves in a futile attempt to escape the guilt and shame that was caused by their sin. How are you hiding from him? How are you coping? How are you trying to avoid that? Are you trying to outwork your guilt and shame that if you just work hard enough and long enough and then maybe go to sleep, you won't feel it? Are you trying to outspend your guilt and your shame? Just buying, buying, buying new things and you know, having that you know, try to cover something in the way that Adam and Eve tried to cover themselves? Are you trying to self-medicate your guilt and your shame? Just not, just not to feel it at all. Just kind of like go into oblivion. Are you trying to travel away your guilt and your shame? If you have enough new experiences and you can pile those on top of each other, you don't feel it as much. Are you trying to perfect away your guilt and shame? If your body is just the way that you want it, or your house is just the way that you want it, or your relationships are just the way that you want it, or your networks are just the way that you want it, that, that, that you can buffer yourself from those feelings of guilt and shame. Doesn't work. We see it in Genesis chapter three. Sin results in a severed relationship with God, and it also results in a severed relationship with other human beings. Adam and Eve hid from God, and hid from one another, where they had been in the garden naked and unashamed, which no human being on this earth can even imagine how that could possibly be true. It was, they aren't anymore. And when God came and confronted Adam in verse 11 of chapter three and said, what have you done? The very first thing he did was not admit his own sin. He said, she did it. This woman, and actually he blamed God, this woman that you made God, I was doing fine, you know, I was fine, but he wasn't, okay? This woman that you made, she did it. They're blame shifting and their relationship is broken and it is painful. The one who had, but, who had just not too long ago been bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is now this woman that you made. It's painful and hard. And you know the, pain of relationships that are broken by sin. There are marriages in this room right now where two people live in a house together but they live as utter strangers to one another. Where sarcasm and where sniping and where manipulation have become the normative modes of communication. Some of you have experienced the pain of, you know, walking up to that group, you know, on the first day of school and they're all talking to each other and then you walk up and they stop talking and they look at you and, and, the, and the look on their face is, what are you doing here? Human beings were not created to relate that way. That's a broken, severed way of relating. Sin also results in a broken relationship with the rest of creation. Thorns and thistles will the earth produce and by the sweat of your brow you will survive. Your work which was created by God to fill his earth and to bring order to it, to participate in his work of filling and ordering creation that was created before sin entered the world now will bring emptiness instead of filling and disorder instead of order. Tests that you study hard for and still fail. 
Deals that you work on for years that fall apart because of somebody's lies or manipulation. Partners who lie to you and stab you in the back. Students who are unmotivated to learn and are constantly rude to you. Children that you raise and and, and sacrifice yourself for that take you for granted and begin to treat you like an ATM or a short order cook. Thorns, thistles, disorder, and chaos. When we were created to cultivate beauty and fruitfulness and order. But the fruit of sin is that our work in this world will always be a mixed bag with plenty of failure and plenty of frustration thrown in. It's one of the results of sin. But while this passage details sin and its consequences, it does not end there. Remember I said that the whole Bible is in this chapter. Even the the good parts are in here too, not just the bad parts. See, It is true that our relationship with God is broken and there is nothing that we can do on our own to repair it. It is true that our relationship with other human beings in this world is severed and broken and there's nothing that we can do to repair it. It is true that our relationship to the rest of creation is broken and bringing forth thorns and thistles and there's nothing that we can do on our own to fix that, but God can. He can. And the great news is He does, he does, he intervenes on our behalf. And so here we see the answer to sin, which is the promise of redemption. In the midst of all this tragedy, there are three really beautiful acts of grace. The first is this, and sit in this for just a second. God pursues sinners. God pursues sinners. After Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and their eyes were opened and they hid from each other, they also hid from God. And God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day and he's calling out to Adam, where are you? Now, God knew where Adam was. God is omniscient. God knows everything. He didn't really know. I picture Adam and his fig leaves, you know, kind of hiding behind a rose bush, so scared, you know, of God that the whole bush is shaking and God's going, you know, hey, where are you? Oh, I know, I've always known where you are and I can see you. Um, You know, where are you? It's as much of an invitation as it is a judgment. It's both of those things mixed together, but there's a lot of grace in that question. There's a lot of grace in that question. Adam, where are you? Why are you hiding from me? Where are you? What's going on? The magnitude of this act of grace can't possibly be overstated. It is true that sin and rebellion against God is extremely serious. The one thing that God never says in this passage is this. Ah, no biggie. No big deal. It's fine. Never says that because it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. Sin is massive. It separates you from God. And if God doesn't act, if he doesn't come looking for you, then we're all gonna suffer eternal punishment apart from him. But God pursues sinners. He doesn't just wipe Adam and Eve off the face of the earth. He could have. He doesn't just destroy everything and start over. He comes to the garden and he looks for them. And maybe you're here this morning and you wonder if it's even possible for God to love you. 
Maybe you thought, but if only you knew, God, I've wandered too far, I've done too much. If only you really knew what was going on in here, if only you really knew what I've done in my life, you would not look at me, you would turn your face away from me in disgust. But that is exactly the opposite of what God does. He pursues sinners. God also protects sinners. There's a sense, theologically, where God is deeply gracious to every single human being. The fact that people are still alive and go to bed at night and wake up in the morning is proof of that. Jesus says in the Gospels that God sends rain on the just and the unjust. Most of my life, I thought what that meant was that God makes bad things happen to believers and unbelievers. It actually means, because it's a desert in Israel, that good things happen both to believers and unbelievers. Rain's a good thing. God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. It's called common grace. But there is an act of protection in this passage which is massively important. It's, it, again, it's, it's mixed with judgment. It's, it's, it's grace mixed with judgment. And we didn't read about it. It's in chapters 20, verses 22 and 23. But God expels Adam and Eve from the garden. You think, oh, that is so sad. They're out of the place of beauty. They're wandering in the place of the earth. They're scratching out a living by the sweat of their brow. And it is true. That is sad. But it's also gracious. Because God says that he expels Adam and Eve from the garden. He puts cherubim, angelic creatures, to guard the entrance back into the garden with flaming swords so that Adam and Eve cannot go back into the garden. Again, it only sounds horrible, but why did he do that? He tells us in chapter 3, lest they go back in and they eat of the tree of life and live forever lest they go back in and eat of the tree of life and live forever. You see, what that means is that God refuses to have Adam and Eve eternally condemned in their sin and rebellion. He makes a way for redemption for them. He makes a way for their salvation by protecting them from being confirmed in their sin against him. He protects sinners. And finally, God saves sinners. After Adam and Eve sinned, God did a couple of things which are magnificent. First, he covered them. He, 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 God himself enacted the first sacrifice by taking, um, by taking fur and, uh, of animals and covering up Adam and Eve. But also, he issues a promise in verse 15. Where speaking to the, to the serpent, speaking to Satan, God says this. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And listen to these words carefully because they are important. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this is very interesting because you can read this and say, I get this. Nobody really likes snakes except for a few people in the world, you know. So, so what God is saying here is he's going he's gonna to make human beings and snakes hate each other for er, forever, right? That's what he's saying, right? That isn't what he's saying. That's not the grammar of this passage. The grammar of this passage is not plural, it is singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Who is the Lord talking about in this passage? Who's he talking about? Well, whose heel was bruised 
by the evil one, but who struck a crushing and defeating blow to the evil one? It's Jesus himself. Jesus, your savior, the one who is to come to rescue you from your sin and guilt is spoken of explicitly right here in Genesis chapter three as the answer and the only answer to sin and its consequences. His heel has to be struck by the evil one. And so he dies on the cross, but it is not a victory because he rises again from the dead and he will return and crush the head of the serpent and fully defeat Satan and sin. Theologians have long called this verse the proto-evangelion, which means the first announcement of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ right here, right here in the midst of this judgment is the gospel of grace. What this means is nothing short of this. All that Satan and sin destroyed in the garden, Jesus repairs through his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension and his return. And you and I can experience the first fruits of that reparative work in our own lives right now by putting our faith and trust in Christ alone. And if you do that, you will experience full freedom from the weight of your guilt and the weight of your shame when he returns to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. No more root of sin. No more consequences of sin. Only eternal answer to sin. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your amazing grace. It's, it's truly amazing. Truly amazing that we might have a relationship with you even in the midst of our sin and rebellion against you. That is all because of you and because of your grace. We pray that we would own that and celebrate it. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.